0: Welcome to 42 Answers from Founders for Founders, a podcast series brought to you by Project A Ventures, the operational VC. My name is Rainer Berak, operating partner at Project A, and our guest today is Jochen Engert. Welcome. Hi. Hey, thanks for inviting me. In this podcast, we talk to great founders and we ask them an identical set of questions in the domains we believe matter tremendously for building a successful company. And these are tech, growth, people, data, and ESG. Jochen, who are you? What do you do? And why do you do it?
1: Yeah, I'm Jochen, one of the founders of Flix, um, Flix Bus and Flix Train. That's our products. And I guess most or in the best case, all of you know it. Um, So we're the guys with the green buses and trains that connect um, multiple cities, um, thousands of destinations across Europe, um, the US, Turkey, and meanwhile, also Brazil. Um, So we built a global platform on mid and long distance mobility where the largest provider um, in our market. And we've grown from being a, let's say, small German startup um, over the past um, 10 years to really be the market leader in our field. Um, And I said, do this with a platform approach. So we're um, ultimately, we are the face to the customer. We want to control the entire customer experience. We do all the network planning, marketing, pricing, and we built all the technology underneath. And operate our network together with um, typically small, medium-sized, in many cases, family-owned businesses who are our operating partners on the bus and also on the train side, and help us ultimately run the network and deliver a great service to really build um, sustainable and affordable mobility for everybody.
0: Thank you so much. And as I understand, platforms, you have two types of target groups. You have the consumers, basically, the people who want to use your bus services or train services. And on the other hand, as you said, the Mostly family-owned, uh, like like people who own a bus and say we want to get onto that platform. You have to basically play on these both target groups, right?
1: Exactly. It's you could say it's some sort of a, a marketplace, and we certainly have analogies to all sorts of different business models. Ultimately, it's it's I think unique what we built, but um, you described it well. So we need to make sure that we find enough customers, and at the same time, we are able to provide the right supply side with our bus partners and train partners together. Um, so, in a, in a sense, it, it really is a marketplace, yeah.
0: Thank you for that. Now, let's get started. People. If you would start a company today, what would be your first five hires?
1: <laughs> I mean, if you don't have a, a co-founder who has a technical background, um, that I think would be one of the first hires to really hire someone who has a very strong technical expertise and, and background. Um I think, to me, you're always late on the HR side. So you should hire someone who runs the people part of your business, helps on the recruiting, building the organization piece, um, and, and sort of covers your back on that. Um, I think you will certainly need someone to do business development um, in the early days and help you build the, the business overall, think through partnerships, how do you build the commercial setup, etc. cetera. Um, and I would think you need someone to build a product. Um, so to think through what's the exact product, the services, also the UI, UX um, that you're building. Um, and then I think it's always helpful to also have someone for finance um, in the early days and help you build all the sort of back office operational setup um, and, and kind of help you as a build in effective company from day one.
0: Maybe side question: On at what seniority would you start? Would you uh, would you try to start with the people who later are your C level, or would you start with like young hires who who are developing over the years?
1: I mean, if t- I guess on the on the co-founder side, if you sort of look for that, you should certainly go for someone who can ultimately keep running the business for the very long term together with you. Um, so more like the C level seniority hire. On the other parts, you probably hire someone who is senior in a sense that he or she has a few years of experience already but may not necessarily be the ultimate c-level a few years down the road. that's something that i think rarely happens first you need to get someone who would be very senior to sign on early on to a very small team with i guess big risk of failure in the early days and that's in some cases may be difficult um in on the other hand you probably don't need all the sort of seniority and c-level type skill set and talent um in the early days but you need someone who who can still sort of get down in the weeds and do something themselves um, and, and not only sort of build and lead a team and, and kind of structure the work, but really get the work done. So I think it's a different profile. So you, I think you need some seniority, some expertise, but it's probably not going to be the final C-level if you look a few years down the road.
0: The way you described it, were these your first five hires? <laughs>
1: for, for us, it, it, it was a bit different. I mean, we're, we were in the lucky situation that we got – and um, Daniel, my co-founder, who brings the tech background, um, and Andre and myself who kind of split up the work around the sort of business development and funding side and, and marketing side of the business. So we kind of brought, I think, a relatively complementary skillset to the table from the founder team. Um, our first hires were around tech to kind of help us build um, the technology and platform, um, were around also communications and PR. That was very important in our case at the very beginning. And then we had a lot of BD, which was really critical for us to build up the supply side in our case. This was the, the point where we got started. Um, so we were more BD heavy than probably many other businesses in, in the first few days.
0: What's the hardest to hire today? Which which profiles are really like very scarce in the market?
1: I mean, for sure. And I mean, I guess we do struggle like so many other companies, most with tech and data talent. Um, so it's really engineering folks on people who bring a background in in software engineering and also data science, data engineering, um, to the table. That's still the hardest part. It ultimately is a scarce resource in the global market, and I feel this doesn't change at all. So if there's anybody out there who studies that or wants to kind of change their their directions into that um, into that field, I think that's worthwhile. Um, there's going to be a scarcity globally. I think for the decades to come, I don't see any anything up on the horizon that that may change this um completely. So um, I think this is this is this is and will be a scarce resource for many and effectively all the tech companies out there.
0: How do you measure employee satisfaction? Because once you got the people, you also want to keep them.
1: Yeah, it's. I mean, yeah, the the hiring is the one piece that's difficult. Um, the other one is certainly the sort of motivating and and retaining um your key talent. Um, I mean, there's a, there's a few things that we try to do. Of course, we try to measure it um, with a regular survey where we're tracking. Um, sort of employee satisfaction, a bit like a, an NPS score. Um, we're also tracking a retention intention. So do you want to stay with us also over the next 12, 18 months or so? Um, and and a few other factors around it to really have a, a pulse check on, on how is the team mood? How is the team doing? Um, are we on track? Are they happy, etc. So there's actually a sort of broader survey that we're doing on a regular basis to give us an insight. And of course, we're also tracking qualitative um, stuff and, and asking them quality, for qualitative feedback in a survey. And in the end, to me, it's also a lot around leadership to make sure that each and every leader on our team has um, happiness and, and satisfaction and retention in their specific teams high up on the agenda and makes sure that um, he or she sort of connects on a very regular basis, checks in with them, asks about how they're doing, etc. Um So we do this in a, I get, I hope, somewhat structured way meanwhile.
0: Uh, but you don't use a, you don't use a, one of the tools on the market for that it's basically your own survey is that correct
1: well we kind of been we've been experimenting with a few tools and and i guess that the tool landscape especially in hr continues to change on a somewhat regular basis mm-hmm. um, so we've been using a few tools from the market ultimately built parts of the survey ourselves but um, mm-hmm. I, I think just also recently moved to another tool um, to, to get this done and also get the insights and analytics out of it
0: okay how do you measure employee performance on the other end?
1: Yeah, I guess in a, in a fast-growing business, um, also very sort of complicated um, endeavor. I mean, we, we've tried to, on the one hand, I guess global performance, we measure on how much or how far do we achieve our business case. Very straightforward. There's a few sort of regular financial dimensions in terms of revenue, profitability. Um, we We have customer satisfaction as a, also one of the, um few overarching goals for everybody um and we have more of a qualitative part where we measure sort of our progress on the softer things so how how well are we doing on the tech roadmap other sort of building skills of the organization etc um try to measure that too and then this breaks down into individual targets um, and and goal achievements um for for our folks again this comes down to a leadership um task and challenge where we are We've been experimenting with a few sort of solutions, systems, logics, frameworks, whatever you want to call them, um, including OKRs and a few others. Um, Ultimately, as I said, we try to align everybody, give them a lot of background on the vision, the global strategy and long-term direction that we're heading, break this down into a yearly budget um, and then break this down into sort of team goals um, and and try to, as I said, enable our leaders to then manage and and measure performance of their um, individual teams.
0: Thanks. Um, how should an organization be structured? Do you have a favorite type of org chart?
1: <laughs> I guess the, the discussion around um, what's the the perfect organization is a never-ending story. Um, and there's always the trade-offs between the different org models that you may have. In the end, I think we, we've seen it as a this is going to be an evolution all along the way. We're going to change and adapt the organization on a continuous basis so we've gone from having a more of a functional setup in the early days of, hey, you BD guys focus on business development now, marketing does marketing, um, sales does sales, et cetera. So everybody's been very focused around a functional um, setup. Um, over And this was effective in the earlier days. Um, meanwhile, there's so many interfaces between the, the different functions. There's a lot of sort of optimization that needs to happen on, on a horizontal level so almost by default, you end up in some sort of a matrix um, where people are either responsible for a function or, let's say, P&L part, a region, a country, or, or, or something something similar, and you need to manage, manage these interfaces. And this is, again, where it comes down to more of a, I guess, philosophical um, discussion around how do you want the people to take over ownership and accountability? This is, to me... One of the major sort of cornerstones of how you build organizations that you have someone who's accountable and owns a certain topic. This may be a process, this may be a KPI, this may be a PL, this may be different things, but you need someone who's who's really taking ownership um, to, to then sort of drive this forward. Um, and then you need to sort of allow and enable the organization to manage these interfaces and build governance around interfaces. How do you make complicated decisions when you have two owners of, let's say, a function and a PNL to ultimately come to the right solution. And this is where you need to build governance. And that's, I, I guess we don't have enough time in this podcast to sort of go through all the details here, but um, this is where it comes down to. In the end, it's really the, it's building that culture of ownership and at the same time solution orientation that, that people come together, find the right solution and are being pragmatic along the way and also keep adapting along the way. So the solution you find now May not be the right one in a year or two from now, Um so this is a, a continuous discussion, I, I guess.
0: Yeah, you already uh, started to tap into culture. What's your approach to culture? What's what's the culture that you are setting, or or how do you build it? And and yeah, how do you go about it?
1: It's a again, I guess, a very sort of broad question, a broad discussion um, that you could possibly have here. Um, to me, we're, we're trying to. We're trying to keep the sort of early stage entrepreneurial startup, we get stuff done culture from the early days as much as we can. Um, We try to tell people that we need and want and foster open communication, um, challenging the status quo, um, and ultimately making arguments count versus hierarchy count. Um, We want them to to be risk takers, want to take sort of um, clear but measurable risk um, and, and at the same time, then learn from failure and learn from mistakes very quickly and then adapt. Um, so very much what you would do in the early days and try to kind of scale this to a broader organization. And then it's really about what are you living as the leadership team? Um, and um, leading by example is, is something that probably everybody has heard um, already. But I think it's, it's still completely under underestimated in a sense that all of your team members will look at you and very closely follow what you're doing. Um how you're doing stuff. And this goes not only down to how do you take decisions in in like a bit the business environment or around commercials, et cetera, but it goes down to are you putting your cup into the dishwasher or not? Um, are you sort of cleaning up the meeting room? Like these these all of these small little things ultimately build and create culture. Um, and then it's a lot around who do you hire, who do you promote and who do you fire? Um, like this is the, I guess the the culture making things, um, if you want to call it that way, um, so that's very critical. So these, all, all of these decisions around the people dimension of your business are being observed in a, in a extensive detail by the team. Um, it will be very visible to everybody. And this is how people also take their own sort of um, judgment around, okay, this is acceptable at the flex culture and this is not acceptable. And this is how I should behave or how I should, how I should not behave. So all of these things are, are super critical. And I think, again, around things being underestimated the, the look and feel and touch and feel of, of HR and people processes is super critical. Um, I think we're it's completely underestimated how this feels to people, how they are sort of invited into interviews, how the interviews are being done, how the whole process in, around onboarding et cetera works. this very much creates culture, especially in a, in a bigger organization. and that's where I think we've we've spent a lot of time on to think this through to build this in, in the way we want this to be um, to give people ultimately a very very strong we call this flick experience. Um, to, to really understand who we are, what we are, how we do stuff, and what we like and also what we don't like.
0: Do you have a remote first or office first setup at Flix?
1: <laughs> it's neither nor. I think at our scale, um, remote first won't work. And there's just, I mean, a significant part of our organization who, who has to work at whatever their location is, right? We, we meanwhile have also um, a lot of people who work in. In sales offices um, with the, especially the ground acquisition also the, the 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 deal in turkey where we bought the local market leader we also have a lot of drivers operational people etc they can't work remote their, their job is just where their job is there's maybe um, a maintenance location this may be a bus etc um, so for us it's, it's always going to be a mix and also for i think the rest of the group it is key that people come together on a somewhat regular basis on a personal level to build trust amongst each other first and second, also to, to kind of create a space to solve complex problems where you need creative sort of discussion modes. And I believe this is, this works best in a, in a personal and, and like direct meeting. Um, we still, of course, I mean, I guess very few companies, especially in our, in our sort of tech growth environment, will work on a fully, um, full office basis. I don't know if Tesla is going to pull this off. I'm curious to see, but yeah. Um, I think the world is just, has just gone hybrid. And there's no way back. And, so, and, and it's, it's different for us team by team. So there's few teams who work more from home or anywhere um, versus from the office, and others are spending 80%, 90% of their time in the office. So it's, it's really something where, ultimately, I think the team has to make that decision. We've been given our teams a framework in terms of we think you should meet on a somewhat regular basis in this and that environment, sort of giving some guidance on, on what we think um, will likely be most productive for us. But in the end, every team has to figure this out themselves, um, and I mean, and, and we trust the teams that they find the best solution in the end.
0: Tech. What you call Flix a tech company? Hmm.
1: It's quite interesting that we still need to explain this in many occasions. Um, but absolutely yes. Um, in our industry, it's quite interesting that the impact of technology has been completely underestimated for decades. If you look at how the old-school companies and incumbents have run their business for, for many, many years, um, the lack of tech has left them in a very inefficient state. Um, so just if you think through the complexity of our network, we're, we're connecting over 5,000 destinations today and all the combinations that you could possibly book and also operate on in between. The the way we run the business with a distributed production network of over like hundreds of partners Um the pricing that we're doing to, to sort of also optimize um, our revenues, the yield management, the marketing with like hundreds of millions of keywords, et cetera, all of this is data and tech-driven. And, and the optimization that, that we're able to do, meanwhile, is very much driven by our proprietary and dedicated software that we built. Um, we For example, we built our own in-house network planning and optimization tool that helps us allocate buses to the right way, select the right partner, um, optimized driver times where do they start in the morning um, stop for a pause change around um, drivers stop in the evening etc so all of this we built in-house same with the the pricing logic um, so tech is, is very much underestimated in our industry and if we look at the recent sort of greyhound deal that we did their tech system on average is older than the average age of our engineers um, it's just insane and the, the level of granularity that we're managing this business on versus what, what the old school incumbents can do it's just dimensions different. And that's why tech is, is having such a big impact. Um, so we're, we're a massive tech business. At the same time, of course, we have the real world exposure with operations, with buses, drivers, all of these people. Um, so it's, it's that mix. I think that that makes us very unique, but without tech, our business won't work.
0: If you think about product and development as the as the two fields within the larger tech cluster, um, who of the two is in the lead?
1: <sighs> I think we're we at a point where also coming back to the organizational discussion that we just had, we um we we've been experimenting with a few different models. In the end, we said um, business, product, and tech need to work as one. So they need to need to be very closely connected, very um, working very closely together ideally sitting in the same room, at least for a few days a week, um, and discuss um, how do we get to our target position, to our target state, achieve a target KPI in the best way. So this needs to be a collaborative discussion between business, product, and tech. And product kind of is the translator, enabler, between, I guess, the business side and and the tech teams. And that's kind of how we use them. But in the end, the teams need to together come up with their roadmap. What do we want to do for the next year for the next quarter how do we prioritize our resources um and need to have these discussions and in in the best case we don't intervene at all um like we don't sort of intervene with these discussions but they build their own roadmaps ultimately all paying into achieving the long term goal um and certain long term longer term KPIs um and that's that's kind of how we sort of think about it and so far this has been working well like the closer we manage to get these teams together the more understanding tech has um, around priorities, decision-making, et cetera, on the business and product side, the better this works.
0: But if they don't get to an agreement, um, who has the final say on what's to be developed next? Hmm.
1: There's a there's a quarterly um, roadmap meeting on our end where we effectively having the teams pitch their roadmap. Um, so they're saying, this is what we want to do. This is the long list of stuff that didn't make it on the roadmap. And then we, we can still have a discussion on Uh, but we feel this feature is going to be more important um, because there may be something strategic coming up that may change priorities. But to be fair, I think the meeting is very important so that everybody also has transparency on what the other teams are working on. At the same time, the number of cases where there's an intervention and priorities are being changed versus what the teams are proposing is very limited. And I think that's actually a good sign. Um, So this seems to be working sort of well for us.
0: What's your take on product-led growth?
1: Hmm. I mean, the the, the question at first is, what is this? What is product-led, and what could this what could this be for us? Because um, is in our case, is product-led offering more inventory at very good prices, and this this helping you to grow. And this certainly is and was always the case. Like the more inventory we had, the better prices we could make, the easier it was for us to grow. Right, so. We we kind of again I guess in in a mixed situation in terms of where's our growth coming from. Of course, we've been aggressive on marketing and like playing all the marketing channels and, sp- and spending like millions on marketing for sure. At the same time, a lot of our growth is coming from adding new lines to the mix, um, improving on our product overall. It's it's like increasing retention, loyalty, repeat rates, etc. Um, so, so there's a strong dimension here too. Um, so it's I think it's very product specific. I and I mean, ideally, you don't need to spend on marketing at all because the product sells itself. If, if you're there, then um, that's probably a nice business to be in.
0: Mm-hmm. Which role does design play in your company?
1: <laughs> um, that, again, a very good question. I mean, if you look at where our industry came from um, and what the industry and its players thought is nice and like designed well... Um, be it on the sort of on the online side of how you sell tickets, how you kind of market the service, and also on the hardware side, then I think we could change this picture completely. Um, so we, we reinvented a brand. Um, we've completely changed the image. And a significant part of that is really its, it's design work. And we again, it comes down to our our notion of we need to control the customer experience to the very last detail. And this goes down to, I mean, <laughs> simple stuff like what's the color of the curtains on the bus or like what's the colors of the boxes that you click um, on the website and how is the UX in the app to make it nice, easy, and convenient for our customers to book. So there's a lot of design UX elements in, in our business too. And especially, and I guess that's the nice and good thing for us. If you have millions of use cases and millions of customers using this on a regular basis, you have a pretty clear and easy to track way to manage do design changes matter? Do people like it better? Do they convert better? Et cetera. So there's a lot we can do. Um what what then brings design more to a UX, A-B testing, conversion uplifting logic um for us. So there's a there's a few sort of major beliefs that we have around our business where where we're not making any compromises around the brand and stuff. But um, apart from that, I think there's a lot of openness to 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 test and and change designs and test around with it um, to ultimately as an improve customer experience which translates into conversion in the end
0: do you or would you ever outsource software development
1: <laughs> we already have because um, we had to I'm coming back to the scarcity of tech talent um, in some cases it's been a it's been a mean for us to speed up certain feature developments certain sort of parts of the roadmap also to start hiring talent I mean we've t- as the Ukraine is big in the media these days, we've actually initially had an outsourced team in Kharkiv over time actually insourced that very team. So these individual people um, onto our own um, sort of payroll um, and made them um, pure Flixies. They've been, it's quite interesting. They Even being outsourced and like working on a somewhat freelance or th- through a third party um, basis, they've been feeling and identifying with the green brand, with Flix um, already. And we, we felt like it's just the right thing to insource it. So I said, we, we've been doing this occasionally. I think on all the core parts of your system and your product, you should have the vast majority of in-house resources. I said there can be um, specialists, sort of some peak capacity that you may need along the way. I think the core part of the business, the system, the product, and especially the baseload for that should be in-house. Growth.
0: If you think about the complete funnel, brand, marketing, sales, customer success, and probably in your case, also the two sides of the platform. Do you have all these functions?
1: Uh, yeah, we, we, we probably have all of them, um, have all these functions Have dedicated teams for it. Um, we've been, if if you mentioned the funnel, we've been starting on a very sort of transactional performance driven basis in the early days. So just trying to sort of capture as much of the traffic that's out there in a transactional thinking. And I said very much through performance marketing. Over time, you also need to go through I mean, to, that's not true because we've we've had awareness through all the PR and communications that we've done, and I guess in in this case we've been in the lucky situation that it's a product that everybody could potentially need and use, and that's sort of very prominent in media, and we get a lot of PR coverage because it's as I said, it's very much at the forefront of what people are doing. Anyways, they use mobility and they want to travel, um, and a lot of journalists want to write about it. So this was this has been lucky, but over time we also sort of invested more in the brand building in the sort of, do you get in the relevant set of people um, logic? Um, So more in the upper funnel part, um, which we haven't done for, I guess, the first few years, at least not to a big scale. Um, And um, so today we're playing the entire funnel and we've dedicated teams for it. And again, coming back to organization, the complexity here is how do you align all of these folks to do the right thing for the entire funnel, mm-hmm. not only for their individual step. And I guess this is again where organization governance um, the right sort of decision logics, et cetera, and alignment and ownership comes in. Um, but as I said, today, we're big believers and you need to manage the entire funnel to ultimately max out on growth.
0: So is any of the, if you think about the ultimate goal of growth, is any of these teams in the lead and like has more to say than the others? It's probably that's hard a, to say openly in a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah, that's true. It's 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 a bit hard to say. I mean, of course, we're ultimately about the transaction, the sort of customer, winning the customer, and then owning and, and retaining the customer. So th- these teams are probably because they have a much more direct impact on on success, also short and midterm. Um, they they would probably be, I would guess, in the lead if you if you want to call it that way. But in the end, you can't always compromise on the upper funnel part for the long term; otherwise, you you lose out. So again, you need to find a um, a mechanism that in, empowers also the teams that work further up in the funnel to also get their fair share on the tech roadmap, the budget, the investments that they can make, et cetera. Otherwise, I said, um, you, you lose out on something, at least on the long term.
0: Yeah, what can you do in order to avoid silos that they, I mean, because you want a well-massaged funnel where, the, where the, these different teams work really well together. How can you ensure that?
1: I mean, in in the end, I think we, we try to all, like, bring it down to what's the customer lifetime value and how do we optimize it? Um, and this is this makes everybody think about who's the right customer to target. How do we position the business, the brand? How do we sort of build marketing campaigns? Um, who do we sell to? Um, how we, do we manage conversion in the funnel? How do we do CRM, etc.? Um, how do we also manage customer service um, and like treat people if things go wrong, right? Um, so I think this is this is what it comes down to. And then in the end, you also need to allocate dedicated budgets that are not in conflict with each other. Because if you want to sort of spend the next most efficient euro, you'd likely spend it on performance marketing somewhere. Um, At least that's the short-term decision. But if you sort of have it on a more mid and longer term view, you need to invest into brand building and and awareness and sort of relevant set on on parts of the funnel. And um, I said, you need to build independent budgets that are not conflicting with each other where the brand team has dedicated money to spend on brand campaigns, for example.
0: Yeah, talking about brand, um, how important is it for you and, and how do you approach that topic?
1: Hmm. I mean, it is absolutely key for us. I mean, in, in our space, um branding is about trust, is about reliability, um, and of course about awareness and all that stuff. But in the end, business people if people sort of use our product, they want to travel somewhere and they want to be sure that they're getting there. And the differentiation, if they book with us or someone else, is a lot driven by What's the brand? Is the do I trust these people, this brand, this product to ultimately not only fulfill my my sort of desire but also sort of get me there reliably and safely? And so brand for us is absolutely key. Um, of course, you try you convey sort of more through the brand than reliability and safety. But um, but um, for us, as I said, it's key. And I think this is the the key differentiator for us globally in the market that we've built a brand that people can relate to and that would get people to use and try out this product who wouldn't have considered this before. I mean, if you go back 10 years in Europe, traveling on a bus wasn't cool, wasn't popular. A lot of people wouldn't have even considered. And the same is true. If you now go to the U S like the, the typical greyhound customer is not the typical Flix customer. So I think we're, we're, um, attracting completely different target groups and have without have opened up a market that just wasn't there before. And this is primarily through the brand, um, the branding approach, the marketing that we're doing, and of course also the product. And we, we set up in the in the past we kept saying the brand is kind of the, the sum of the experiences that we that you make with our product. Um this is building the brand. Um and I think that's that's still true until today to a very vast extent, but still you need to be even more aware around the communications part of branding. How do you sort of, which mes- messages do you put out there? How do you get people um aware and attracted in the first place before they even try it out? Because interestingly um, you need to get over that point where people are considering it and really trying it out because the NPS of users versus non-users is significantly different. So if, if someone has never traveled with us, they have a very bad perception of what this product is and how happy they would be with the product. So we need to make, people to try it out so the, the again the upper funnel part of it has become ever more important for us
0: if we now go down the funnel to marketing um which marketing channels do you use and why or i guess in your case i should ask are there particular ones that you don't use and why
1: <laughs> yeah, that's, 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 that's certainly the better question otherwise it's, be, it's going to be a very long answer um no, i mean we've effectively and and again coming back to what what do we want the teams to do we we have tried out pretty much everything and anything you could think of um and we keep keep pushing the teams to hey let's try new stuff and, uh, and let's also retry stuff that didn't work maybe two three years ago or so for whatever reason try it again um and see if there's other stuff that we can do and um, so effectively we're playing all the channels on especially on the online side we certainly have sort of mixed um, experiences on the offline side um there's some I mean radio campaigns is always to me it's difficult to track and, and sort of make this work um but we've done a lot of out of home also recently in in like train stations for the Flix train launch in Germany um so it's really across the board um we always try to be again on point with the branding so does it fit to our brand is this where we want to position ourselves etc um but th- there's very few things that we haven't and wouldn't try um so it's very broad and in the end it's really about Trying stuff out, try to measure it somehow, learn from it, and then scale it. And this is the difficult piece. Like, how do you scale channels? And of course, like Google is easier to scale than out of home media um, in, in many, many areas. Um, but still, um, it's, it's about finding scalable marketing channels that give you a good return on your marketing invest.
0: TikTok already there? Of
1: course. <laughs> Of course. Fits, fits I mean, your target group perfectly. Yeah, I yeah. No, no way around. I mean, this is incredible how fast this business has grown and how many people are, are there and you can reach through there. It's incredible.
0: Do you have salespeople? I guess you do more than on the supply side, right?
1: Um, I mean, we have salespeople in a sense that um, we sell tickets offline in partly owned shops, but also on with travel agencies. So you could call these guys salespeople. We also have people on our team that kind of build sales partnerships with, let's say, B2B customers in some cases. um, This may be events, this may be companies, et cetera. Um, So we do have a sales team in that sense. Yeah,
0: Yeah, I I think I was more thinking about, and I know, of course, getting supply is not sales. It's rather... um, the opposite been, but yeah, still we call yeah. we call
1: this partner management and business development but yeah okay yeah. so i was thinking in that direction
0: <laughs> because you need to acquire those who give you the supply that you can sell afterwards and this very often follows classic sales logics or, or sales mechanisms so you have these it's, people it's i guess true. right
1: yeah yeah we, yeah we have these two they they used to be more important in the earlier days when you build supply let's say in a new country from day one i mean we, we've launched in brazil just uh, end of last year um the, the job that the team has done on the ground for the first six, 12 months or so is very closely related to a sales job. It's like pitching our story, telling them why this is a good deal, why they should become partners, etc. cetera. Um, so very closely related. But in the end, this transitions relatively quickly into partner managers who help them on a day-to-day basis to onboard, to work with us, to manage quality, to manage also commercial success, et cetera. Um, so it's a sales job only at the beginning, I would say.
0: Yeah, I remember when we were invested in Treatwell, and we were working exactly on helping them um, acquiring salons for their for their business. But that job was, or this field was actually called sales, because you we were selling the product <laughs> or the platform to the to the salon owner. And one of the difficult or challenges back then was to find people who are tech savvy enough to actually transport the right message, but also being into that type of work. Where do you find digital savvy? salesy kind of people.
1: And it's <laughs> Again, coming back to scarcity of talent, probably one of the things that's very difficult to find. I mean, in our case, to be fair, of course, there's a tech relation and tech connectivity from our partner managers, for sure. It's not that this is the complex part of that job in itself. I mean, they need to explain to them on how do we work together, what's the interfaces, how do you connect to the partner portal, etc. So there's a tech dimension. Um, but it's more around really understanding the industry well, um, understanding how also these owners of these bus companies work and tick in the end, and how do you sort of make them partners um, than sort of understanding the tech product in detail. So for us, I think on on that end, at least it's a bit easier, Um, but um, it's certainly a complex area to find talent who brings the sort of tech background and understanding and, and still has the drive to actually go into sales and do sales. Data.
0: How does data make Flix successful?
1: I mean, just think about um, tens of—if uh, I mean, hopefully, and we're on the path to track 100 million passengers per year. That's that's going to happen um, rather sooner than later. Um, plus, it's the, the the sheer possibility of combinations that you could run on our network, including interconnections, but also direct trips. There's like an incredible amount of, of data involved in our business overall um, we keep um track of it we, we track a lot of the stuff that we do i mean not only the sort of gps live tracking of our fleet that helps us again optimize schedules etc but also around what's the the performance of each and every single part of a line so let's say a partner runs an a to f connection we track it down to what's the performance of his network and his schedule on a tuesday morning between b and c and what's the Track record of that part of his line over the past three months or so, and how can we optimize this for him? Is there something missing in the marketing funnel? Is the schedule not right? Does he have a quality issue, etc.? So we track all of all of these um, KPIs, um, and then he really uses in our software to ultimately help us optimize it. And the same is true for pricing and yield management. Hundreds of millions of data points. Um, we like all of the seats that we're selling at the different price points that we could possibly do, and we optimize it for pre-booking time, utilization level, seasonality, overall traffic that we have, there are competitive situations, so tons of sort of input factors that ultimately help us manage pricing. Um, So there's a lot of data that is in and goes in and out of our business and helps us ultimately optimize it. And again, build sort of dedicated teams that build the software, the optimization layer, data tools, um, and and also ML and in parts, even AI um, logics um, to help us optimize the business further.
0: Do you encourage your data people to just explore data and find opportunities or are they asked to rather answer specific questions?
1: I guess it's a a bit of both. I mean, we're still at a stage where it's relatively clear what you need to do in terms of this is the solution that we need to build. That's the optimization problem that we want to solve. Um, But I think that at least the direction is relatively clear. So it's not like, here's a data dump and find us optimization solutions that you find into that data. Um, That's typically not not the approach because I said, I mean, on the pricing side, I think we've come a long way to automate um, the different pricing activity, building a sort of AI and ML-based system that is ultimately completely independent from human decision-making. This is still what we're working on. Very clear that this is going to have a massive impact on our business. So it's a clear path that we need to build this and, and the teams are working on it. Um, and there's like parts of this challenge is certainly going to be to find out which patterns are relevant in there. So they do have this big data dump and they sort of look for these patterns and try to sort make use of them. But I guess on a, on a broader base, I think the direction is still relatively clear that um, we're not in this exploratory sort of environment just yet.
0: How can you make sure that the people do what the data recommend?
1: Hmm. i guess you're talking about the is there psychology behind it that people may take (laughs) different decisions versus what what the data would
0: suggest Um, let's let's just say we saw a number of startups where you have a data team and they do create all kinds of reports for like let's say the marketing team and the marketing team is just taking decisions um without even looking at them it just happens (laughs) a lot it shouldn't but it happens
1: yeah. I, I mean, I can't rule out this happens in our team too, um, but I would say in general, um, we built this business on the basic belief of technology and, and um, data will make this much more efficient and much better than anybody else. And I think we've been proving this along the way that we've created in this, in efficiency in this industry that's unseen before. Um, and that's why I think we hire analytical people, rational people in like a large extent, Um, And we've been taking decisions very much based on data and analytics all along the way. And uh, coming back to culture, that's a very sort of core part of our DNA. Um, Again, this doesn't help you to rule out human failure, psychology, um, gut feel. Um, And I guess to to some extent, that's also good because the the data doesn't always give you the right decision because there may be some background or something missing and stuff. So it's always good to have someone... With a good business judgment to look at it, but like overall, I think we're very much a data-driven company and take data-based decisions.
0: Which data tools and infrastructure do you use? To the extent you are allowed to share that.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I was about to say you should probably talk to my, to my co-founder Daniel about it. um But I mean, it's it's the the snowflakes of this world. Um, so I guess the for us, it's it's mostly the bigger enterprise tools that are able to kind of manage the amount of data that that we have. Meanwhile. Um, and I said, it's usually the larger tools we also, I mean, in many cases, difficult to get around, let's say, the Salesforce marketing cloud to manage the CRM basis, like all the that, that part of our data. Um, and then I said on, on pricing, yield management, network planning, et cetera, we built in-house solutions to also make sense of that. Then you will have some sort of, let's say, Power BI solution on top that helps you illustrate and, and analyze part of it. But like the underlying foundation and, and the software, in many cases, also in-house built.
0: How is your data team structured? Which roles do you have there? And where is it hanging in the organization?
1: Hmm. I mean, for, for us, again, it works best if they work closely with the business the business owners um, and the product guys. So there can be completely interdisciplinary teams of the business people, product owners, um, regular engineers, plus data science, data engineers that jointly work on some subject or some problem. Um, that's usually how how we like it best. So we don't have like a, let's say, a central data team that works on requests that come out out of the different teams. But we try to really dedicate um, data resources to where they they have the biggest impact. Again, marketing intelligence, for example, um, has their own sort of set of data scientists and data data engineers that that sit and work closely together. Um, that's usually how how we prefer this to be to be built. Because then, again, to me comes that comes back to how do I give them as much background and understanding of the actual business problem to ultimately build the right tech and data solutions?
0: GDPR, is it a struggle or an opportunity?
1: Oh, it's a struggle. <laughs> um,
0: it's, you, you, you don't yeah. really get a competitive advantage here if, um, out of anything you can do about that, I guess, right? For some companies, it's, that's the case.
1: Yeah, no, no that, that's true. I, I can totally see that, how, how you can build a business around it. In our case, it, it typically makes our life more difficult because like most of our competition isn't big enough to really make this an issue. In our case, you do this across countries, cross borders, tech systems, etc. Um, this creates a lot of complexities. Um, I mean in, in some countries we we have to kind of build up dedicated systems to keep all the data locally and cannot sort of share it with all the rest of the central data, etc. So it creates a lot of complexities rather than being an opportunity for us to be fair.
0: Yeah, plus, as far as I understand, your competitors, um, to the extent that you have them or who I would understand as your competitors, they are so not data and tech savvy that you cannot shine by, uh, I don't know, handling everything in a more concise way than they do because they just yeah, don't exactly. do it at all.
1: Exactly. Because they, they just don't handle it all. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. Environmental, social and governance.
0: Why didn't you start an ESG company? And I hope I, I don't I, I don't want to like uh, step on your toes, but uh, I, I wouldn't describe Flix in like first as as an ESG company, or or do you disagree?
1: Yeah. See, and this is why we need, still need to do a lot of education. Because <laughs> okay, <laughs> I mean, my, my big take on ESG is my big take. That sounds like going to come up with something like the wisdom from wherever but. No, I think in general, the direction in which we're heading that this is going to be more and more of a focus for entrepreneurs, for managers, for investors, for the public, I think is good. Um, In our case, and I think broadly in in every company's case, you should take a clear decision on what you can really have an impact on, which part of ESG, where can you create an impact? And for us, this is clearly E, so we can clearly make a difference around the environment. Um, Of course, we're trying to... Um, sort of tick the boxes on the S and G side. Of course, we're sort of we're pushing diversity and equity and inclusion, et cetera. This is very, very important for us, but th- that's not going to be the major differentiator versus any potential other company. For us, it's really around the environment. And this is where we can make a difference to, really, to first make people switch from um, individual means of transportation, cars, and also flights into buses and trains. This creates a massive impact on, a better carbon footprint i'll give you a few numbers shortly and and second and we've been sort of de- like reducing our emissions offsetting our emissions on the platform side on how we sort of run the business but the big emission factor for us of course is the fleet um, and we're working together with um, partners on the oem side on the supplier side to have a clear path towards having zero emissions from the fleet through hydrogen buses solar-powered buses, electric buses, whatever the solution ultimately may be. So we're working on that, keep pushing them, trying to experiment around having pilot projects running, etc. That's still going to be a few years out, but it will happen. Um, and then I think our environmental impact is going to be even more substantial. I mean, already today, if you look at 21, um, 2021, um, we've, we've been asking our customers broadly on a global level, what would your alternative mean of transportation have been and if you compare this to the footprint they would have produced versus traveling with us, we already say 400,000 tons of CO2. This is likely going to be a million tons this year and continues to increase the bigger we go and the more people we're making sort of switch from, especially cars, to using us. And at the same time, um, our customers are deciding on an increasing level to also tick the box and, hey, I want to offset my trip. And offsetting is a somewhat controversial discussion and we're, 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 we're not in general pro offsetting i believe you should rather invest your resources your attention your money your energy into reducing and finding ultimately sort of net zero um, solutions and this asset ultimately is going to be important to to reduce and get them to zero de- the emissions of our fleet that's what we're working on but already today i think our, our impact on the environment in mobility is massive um, and we continue to sort of scale this push this forward and we're certainly part of the solution to decarbonize the mobility and transportation space.
0: How about the S in ESG social, Uh, which role does it play in the way you run your business? (laughs) Mm.
1: I mean, in the end we we are a low cost mean of transportation. So we allow more people to travel and and a lot of people who possibly couldn't afford it before. Um, And there's the the sort of the nice stories around long distance relationships. People can see each other more often because it's just cheaper to travel. I think we opened up long-distance mobility for a part of the, the the society that as I said couldn't travel before at all because it was just too expensive. They didn't have a car, train, and flight prices were too high, etc. So this is this is open, and I think we're trying to be as inclusive as possible. Um, so make it really easy for anybody to use our product. Um, so there's a I think there's a very strong social aspect to it, and at the same time, I could probably give an entire lecture on this now, but. Um, it's also about connecting um, smaller cities, smaller towns, villages even, that lost any connection to the long-distance network in whatever country, mm-hmm. right? So in many cases, also the state rail guys had to focus their their core network on the bigger cities, et cetera, with a bus where you only need to fill up, I mean, 50 seats in total, but if you do 25, 30 or so, it, it already starts to work. So it's a relatively small um, small size that you need to make this work, so we can also connect smaller places um, across all our countries, um, and that, I think something ultimately that's also social to really give mobility back to these people. And now take Greyhound in the U.S. For many, many people across the U.S., this is the only way to get around. Um, the, the Greyhound teams used to say it's coach or couch, so you can you can either stay home or you can take a ground. Otherwise, you, you're not going to travel from these places at all. So I think it's very, very social what we're doing.
0: Very fair point. How about governance? Uh, for most founders, governance, the G in ESG is a little bit like a big question mark and they don't know even how to read or interpret that. What's your take? Do you Is is governance in a, in, an important factor at at uh, Flix? Mm.
1: I mean, absolutely. Um, in a sense that once you start growing up as a company, you need to think through how do you take decisions on a also global and longer-term and strategic level? How do you sort of avoid missing out on big things that could impact your business? Um, and how do you make sure you also have a relevant system of checks and balances in your sort of longer-term governance? And although us entrepreneurs, they, we, we all tend to think that we know what's best for our business and we always take the right decisions ultimately, um, it totally makes sense to kind of build bodies that, um, as I built this system of checks and balances. Um, and especially in our case, as we've become such a sort of big and global business and relatively prominent, if, if you would say like we're, we're in the media on a regular basis, there's a lot that can go wrong. And you just want to make sure that you build the right also risk systems, um, measures, etc. to prevent that the organization in whatever way um, does something stupid um, and something harmful to, of of course, to our business, but ultimately also to our customers, like just think through safety on our end, right? Um, So you want to make sure you have the right measures in place. And then governance is, is always a big word in terms of this happens on the sort of top level and you build a supervisory board and these kind of things like in public companies. But to us, it also comes down to how do we manage risk, safety, security with our partners? How do you enforce all these guidelines that are there from a legal perspective anyways, but how do you make sure you really enforce them, control them properly, et cetera? So there's a lot of that, um fact that that sort of part in our especially in our business so i think for us it's, it's absolutely key and it's something that you need to build anyways along the way when you grow up um, as a company um and and i think in that sense it's totally fair that it's there and people are also challenging companies um latest when they when they sort of start growing bigger
0: now a lot of companies try to focus more on esg and for the early stage ones that are uh, vc funded the question is um, does it actually help them get funding or do investors rather see this as a deflection from maximizing revenue? What's what's your guess? What would you advise uh, young founders to do here?
1: I think the perception of investors that ESG is costing you money is meanwhile already a few years old. Um, I think the perception has completely changed Too, this is a huge opportunity. It's here to stay. And it's a space where Massive companies are going to be built on real innovation to ultimately make the world a better place and help us sort of have a more environmentally friendly, more social and more equitable being together. Um, And I think this is, and you'll see this, I mean, there's sort of all the quotes also from like bigger investors and stuff that the, the next, I don't know, thousand unicorns or so are going to be built around climate. I totally think this is true. I totally think there's going to be massive companies evolving out of this, out of this huge trans, um, transformation that humanity has to go through over the next, I mean, only few years, right? Um, so I think there's I said, massive companies are going to be built and and investors increasingly get it and dedicate funds, money, et cetera, towards it. Um, not only for greenwashing purposes, but for real, we see this as a business and there's a massive opportunity purposes. And I, I totally think this is true.
0: Um, back to the organization. Do you have Atflix something like an ESG officer?
1: We have a, um, an ESG team, if you will. Um, so a, um, a colleague who, who runs it and has kind of started um, ultimately um, also str- not streamlining, but uh, getting all the different initiatives that we had across the organization together. Um, again, creating um, ownership um, for it. Um, so we've built a team our colleague, she's sort of managing this, building our also sustainability strategy based on this and ultimately also prioritizing what are we spending our time and money on um, to really get things going and really create the maximum impact that we could possibly create. Um, and as I said, for us, the especially the environmental part has always been a core part of our strategy, vision, and DNA. Um, and we wanted to make sure that we also dedicate actual resources to it and make sure that we max out on our impact.
0: Um, the person leading that ESG team to whom is this uh, person reporting?
1: at the moment um, that's a good question because so we, we've been sort of shoveling this back and forth um i've 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 been running this directly for a while. I think meanwhile she's um di- directly reporting to Andre as the CEO in this case.
0: okay thank you at least
1: at least in a steering committee type of setup, because um, we, as I said, want to reg- be on a regular um, discussion here and have regular updates and, and be very closely involved to make sure that we, we prioritize the right things. Mm-hmm.
0: Last three questions. Which one is the one podcast all founders should listen to?
1: I mean, except for this
0: one. Except for this one, of course.
1: <laughs> <laughs> to, to be fair, I'm not a big podcast listener, I must say. So I probably won't have a very good recommendation ab- um, apart from yours.
0: Okay. Um, what are your top two pieces of advice for early stage founders?
1: <laughs> I guess there's the, primarily one, which is just get started. Um, a lot of like people think about, am I going to do this? Am I going to found a company at all? And if they're sort of in the first phase, is this going to work, etc.? So just get started get it done and like put all the passion in there that you could possibly bring to the table
0: mm-hmm. okay last question who are the two other founders i should ask this set of questions and you can make an introduction for me
1: <laughs> i mean you, you can ask johannes reck from get you guys um it's going to be an interesting conversation i think you can ask narin um from Omio. okay from our industry if you will he probably yep. also has a lot of interesting
0: stories to tell. Thanks so much. I'm a lot looking forward to these introductions. Thank you so much, Jochen. I wish you all the best for you and for Flix. And that's it for today, folks. Thanks for listening in. We appreciate your interest. If you want to know about Project A and the stuff we do on both the investment side, as well as grab a ton of operational knowledge, please go to projecta.com and of course, visit us at the Project A Knowledge Conference. I also hope to see you there, Jochen. We should probably talk about a speaker slot if you're interested. Uh, The ticket application otherwise is open now, so it's the right time to go there. And for the podcast, if you want to hear more of us, subscribe to this podcast, rate it, review it, and of course, share it with all your colleagues, friends, and family. Goodbye. Hello, podcast listeners. We have some exciting news for you. Our Project A knowledge conference is back and happening on October 7th at Kultur Brauerei in Berlin. If you want to get to the heart of the European startup ecosystem and connect with founders, leading investors, and digital experts, join us for a whole day of knowledge sharing
1: and networking, where experts from every area of digital operations will share their insights and best practices. This year we're bringing you an amazing speaker lineup including Christian Hecker, co-founder and CEO at Trade Republic, Lubomila Jordanova, co-founder and CEO at Plan A, and Philip Glockler and Philip Glockner, co-hosts of the Doppelganger Tech Talk podcast. Apply for a free ticket now or purchase one directly from our website, knowledge-conference.project-a.com.